Welcome to the Normal to Nomad podcast, where we share stories, thoughts, ideas, and conversations on our journey to find balance with nature in a technologically advanced world. My name is Baron, And I'm Elsa. We live together in a 13-foot scamp trailer with our dog camp in the American wilderness. Greetings. Welcome to today's podcast. We're coming at you from Montana. Elsa is currently editing a video of our fly fishing trip. We spent five, six days off-grid camping and fly fishing, and we have sort of a documentary-style um, video coming up, so that should be pretty exciting. I'm sitting here with Andrew Crow. He and I met, what, like six months ago something? Yeah, it was a while ago, yeah. And we've been talking over Instagram and stuff, and he said once we come up to Montana, we got to hang out and fly fish and he'd show us all the spots so we went with he and his girlfriend and her brother um to some backcountry in montana to go fly fishing and geek out in the wilderness and it's been a blast and a lot of our conversations got to the point where i was like man we got to share this this is really fun so hopefully you enjoy greetings andrew <laughs> welcome thank you where should we start i guess brief introduction of like you you know like where are you at currently um, I think it's interesting what you studied that kind of thing okay yeah so I went to college for cell biology and neuroscience um, and so the previous plan was to actually be applying to medical school about a year ago and kind of following that route um, but the more and more that I realized you know what that would actually um, be like the the real life aspect of being a doctor I've kind of kind of steered away from that and so um, in my free time now, I've been working at a medical office doing like stem cell injections and um, like laser therapy, so all like alternative modalities for um, healthcare. Um, so what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, just, just using different technologies that you can use, uh, so regenerative as opposed to like the standard uh, means to actually treat a uh, disease or um, whatever the case may be. Um, generally speaking, it's introducing a new compound or it is um, removing whatever is maladaptive in the body. And in this case, you're actually playing upon natural mechanisms in the body to um, actually cause it to almost correct those problems on its own. Interesting. Um, and same thing with stem cell, of course. You'd be looking at mechanisms that would allow your body to almost jumpstart back into a, a more infant state and that it can actually address and actually rebuild tissues that normally it just wouldn't do on its own. So what kind of ailments or diseases or what are you treating, I guess? Um, joint pain. Um, low back pain is obviously a really big one. Essentially everything that you can possibly think of that would... Um, ail an older person is things that we'll um, treat on a daily basis. Okay, cool. And that's kind of a, that's just your like current means of income, correct? Yeah, and, and so with that, like we've really utilized that to um, invest in a home as opposed to rent. Um, I really like the idea of being more mobile, um, just being more um, autonomous in what I'm doing. 
um, and, and with an apartment um, or even a larger scale tiny house, it, it's just not something that you can really do. I mean, it's difficult driving 60 miles with a tiny house um, <laughs> of the proportions that we oftentimes see on um, you know, YouTube or whatever the case may be. Right. So with a fiberglass trailer like what we went with, um, in a large part uh, as a result of watching Baron and Elsa's videos, um, I think that it kind of reaches a happy medium of portability and um, also just being able to uh, improve it and make it ours, where oftentimes you can't do that. Um, and and it's, it was affordable enough and a good investment that it was a worthwhile um, thing to do. It wasn't taking a back step like rent would have been. Um, it, it's, it's advancing in the future with an investment and with a place to live while we're doing whatever we're doing now. So maybe let's dive into the camper. So tell us about yeah. what's what's her name or his name? <laughs> it's, it's Pi. So <laughs> it'd be like the Greek letter Pi. Um, and, and so uh, it just we got it off of a sticker um, on the camper, so it's not really too fancy. But it's it's a really cool value, and like you could math is pretty cool. So I like I like Pi. Um, <laughs> but it's a um, nineteen eighty five U-Haul CT thirteen. And so they were originally made by U-Haul to be uh, like rented out essentially like for a weekend camping trip. Um, and it didn't really go in favor of U-Haul, I guess. Um, like they weren't making enough yeah, money. Yeah, and, and so they eventually sold them off into the public in 1992, I believe. I mean, you can go on to all the forums. All those guys know U-Haul campers much better than I do. But from what I was able to glean from them, um, they weren't successful, but... Um, they were built much, much um, sturdier than a lot of the fiberglass campers just because of the wear and tear they kind of expected to have them put through with all the people actually renting them. And they're a little bit bigger even than the scamp. Yeah, it's kind of strange seeing like another fiberglass trailer um, with respect to ours. I think it's taller, but um, the internal dimensions are... Just they're, strange. they're different, yeah. Like their closet, for example, reaches out further into the main living area, and it's a little bit more narrow, and the ceiling is far taller. Um, yeah, I can stand up in it. Yeah, and you're six two, six three, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Somewhere in there, <laughs> taller than I am. Um, so that's super cool. And then it's the bumper is really like reinforced and. Yeah. Seems bomb-proof. Yeah, it's got an aluminum bumper on the back so you don't back into something. Um, or if you do, it's not going to destroy the fiberglass. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really strange, all the, the differences in it. Um, it's been a really fun thing to work on. Do you mind saying what you paid for it? Uh, it, was, it was like $9,000. Okay. Um, which is a little bit more than what we were really wanting to go with to begin with. Probably in a large part just because, like, I mean, seeing what you guys paid for yours, that was... We were kind of like, whoa, like, you know, we're kind of overstepping what the uh, value of these actually are. But, but when you're buying a house for under ten grand, it's pretty logical even still, right? Yeah, what really um, got me to actually just kind of finally just say we're going to buy it um, is looking back at all the money we'd spent in rent looking for a trailer was equivalent to the cost of the trailer in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. So, like, we were so concerned to, like, invest in something to live in when the thing that we'd been investing in, if you will, for the last, you know, year was more than that, and we weren't going to get any return on it. Right, so you're, you're shopping around trying to get the best deal, and <laughs> right, then right. doing that each month that you spend... It's getting more and more expensive. <laughs> right, that's an interesting thought. 
So then where did you find it and where did you have to look and how was like the tracking one down? What was that like? Tough. Um, I think that the biggest thing was we were really looking uh, at greater distances than probably we should have been doing to begin with. As so, far as in proximity to where you live? Yeah, so like, you know, like Washington and Oregon, we were looking at a lot of um, Craigslist ads over there, and we wouldn't have even been able to plan a trip out there in the time that would have been required to get it. I mean, as soon as they became available, they'd be, you know, gone in a couple of days, and most definitely within a week if it was a worthwhile trailer. And so we started looking more in Montana, and interestingly enough, the one that we ended up buying... Um, we kind of put off for a while. Like we kind of thought it was kind of silly. Like it, it seemed like <laughs> just because it was a U-Haul. Like what the or heck's what? a U-Haul trailer? Like these people must not know who what they're talking about. And then I started really looking at it and doing some research. And um, that, in conjunction um, with the durability of them and the rarity of the trailer, that really bought me as well. I mean, I think there was only uh, I think there was seventeen hundred and fifty of them made of the thirteen foot trailers. Wow. And so to me, like, my dad's really big into, like, investing in, like, artwork or, like, money or, like, limited runs of things. And so it made sense to me to also do that with the trailer. I mean, if you could do something that wasn't just mass-produced and, you know, how many of those trailers are even surviving now? So yeah. you're really looking at something that's so finite that, and for whatever reason, people love finite things. <laughs> so... That, that seemed to be a good investment and a, a good selling point. So it'll almost in, almost definitely increase in value over time. Yeah, I would, I would think so. I've, I've heard talk of them actually like doing something like what Airstream has done, where you have like an Airstream club. Hmm. They've kind of talked about like taking all the U-Hauls that are present now and, and kind of keeping track of them better, longitudinally speaking, to see, you know, which ones are even alive and also see like who has them and where they're at that's cool which i think would be super cool i mean like you you see a big number plastered on the back of pie and it like (laughs) has like a you know almost like a weird serial number that's beyond the the u-haul aspect and more of a community aspect for people who are utilizing them for different purposes now so they really tell a huge story i mean it's it's crazy to think that you know our house has already lived several lives and it's just now jumping into like a a, a new future. Right. I'm super stoked about it, yeah. So, um, when you got the camper, what kind of shape was it in and what kind of work have you done thus far? So, part of it, it, it was hard to tell. Like, around here, we have a lot of problems with rust. And around here is, where are we in Montana, so, generally speaking? Yeah, so northern Montana, northwest okay. Montana. So, a, a lot of the roads around here, they use a lot of, like, sodium chloride, um, and so it just completely destroys um, vehicle frames around here. And so first thing I was really attentive on was looking and making sure we didn't have a bunch of rust damage. On the frame. Right. And so like first thing I did was I was crawling underneath it and making sure we were okay on that respect. Um, it was very well put together um, in that there were compartments designed for all the holes they had cut. Hmm. Um, and so they had like little U-Haul inserts for like the area above the kitchen, like dinette, I think that's what they call them. And so you had to actually like unscrew those to even get into access the full space that you actually had. Interesting. And so in a large respect, we ended up losing a lot of our ability to really visualize what we were buying because of the fact that it was so well put together. Oh, uh, so you couldn't really get at the skeleton of it. Right. 
And, and the other thing that U-Haul did that was really interesting is that U-Haul campers are actually like a... I've heard the marine community kind of say it's not true, but they're almost like a double hull or a double wall structure. So I guess it's not the same as like how boats were actually put together. Because you probably couldn't dip it in the water and have it hold water between the two holes, right? To be honest, I wouldn't want to really try. Right, right. <laughs> but, we haven't tried that yet. <laughs> but it has, it's like an external fiberglass layer, and then you have like an internal fiberglass facade within that, right? Right, and, and so that's, yeah. And, and so we have like, we've got the inner layer, um, and it goes up into like a seam on the top. And so these U-Haul campers are very similar to how like the burrows are put together, where they have that center seam where they take two of these molded pieces, fit them together. Um, but in this one, um, they covered that center seam with carpet, which hmm. I don't know who was responsible for that idea. I really, I'd love to talk to them about that too. <laughs> and this is opposed to like in the scamps build, it's, the it's clamshell the top onto the bottom portion mm -hmm. um so there's a seam going across the middle so we have that metal flashing across the middle line of the scamp um horizontally on the u-haul it's split directly in half on like a what would that be like a vertical sagittal okay okay sagittal of course <laughs> <laughs> so the the line splits from like the tongue of the trailer up across to the tail rather than going all the way around. And so, in a large part, they hid um, an old damage to the external fiberglass shell by having that carpet on the inside. And so, the best that I can come up with is that a tree or something fell on it at one point in time, um, which really, honestly, is not a problem, and structurally speaking, like, it was, wor it was repaired. I'm just kind of extremely particular with that type of thing and I really like to know like you know what are what are, what is the state of the overall trailer like how is it put together is it rigid do I have to be concerned about certain regions of it and so like as we started pulling down the carpet um, one of the older repairs we realized hadn't been fiberglassed appropriately and so I learned how to fiberglass real quick um, <laughs> and we did a few repairs on that um, there was a there was a hole cut out on um, the driver's side, and they had to put a fan underneath the kitchen dinette. I don't know why. Um, huh. And so what we did was we actually, um, we removed all of like the sink and everything underneath the dinette, and we were able to get into the back side of the piece of metal that had been riveted to the fiberglass, and we wiped it down with isopropyl alcohol, and then we were able to fiberglass on top of that piece of metal. And so by doing that, we're essentially getting an external backing that mirrors that of the external border of the fiberglass, and we're filling the hole at the same time. And then what we, would, we did was we went back through and we drilled out all the rivets and pulled that piece of metal off. And so that gave us a, a cover that um, to, I, I believe it to be stronger than the actual structure of the fiberglass. Uh, fiberglass for these trailers is actually put in with like matte. And so you can also use like a cloth, it's like a fabric, it's like an interwoven um, fiberglass material and it's way more um, um, structural. It has more rigidity with that respect. And so we put a little bit of that on there as well since we had, you know, we bridged such a large gap. Right. I felt it necessary that we made it um, stronger than maybe how you would have repaired it. Um, and, and there's there's kind of, 
I don't know. There's perspectives as to how you should go about doing that, but it seems bomber though. Yeah, and it looks good. I think once you guys sand it down and match the paint, it'll be yeah excellent. Yeah, I, and I, I love being able to actually like learn how to do things. I mean, if anything, like my college education has taught me that just to be able to be. Um, I don't know, be optimistic in what you're able to actually address. Like, you can solve way more than you really think you can if you just trust in yourself enough to just just try, just dabble in it just a little bit. Um, I think that's such an important lesson. Yeah, and it, it's terrifying. I mean, like, I mean, like <laughs> buying a camper trailer like this and saying that you're going to live in it, and then now you've got a big hole that you just ground through it, and you've never fiberglassed before in your life. Like, you kind of reach a point where you're like, you know, maybe maybe I should just, like, return this. Like, <laughs> does this dude have, like, a return policy on this? Yeah. Um, but in reality, I think that, you know, being able to start in, like, these little projects and kind of work your way up into... Um, the confidence that you can start tackling things that are more meaningful at a larger scale. Um, and that's kind of what we've been, I mean, I, I've definitely done it before with different projects, but this has really been like, I'd say probably like my first like really large scale totally. like, um, approach at really learning something that is very, very necessary that I learn how to do quickly <laughs> and do well. <laughs> So, and then you had an AC unit on top, so oh, fiberglass. So initially, though, if I understand correctly from your warning labels that are still attached inside the pie, <laughs> um, there was a swamp cooler, which is kind of, that's kind of the same mechanism that we use to cool down our cooler with like a evaporative cooling. Yeah. But how, do you know how that worked or what the idea was there? Yeah. So to my knowledge, there was a... A water pump that was um, in the rear driver's side compartment underneath the bed and so that pump um, would run would pump water from I don't know where the reservoir actually was but they had had they would have had to have a water reservoir and it would just pump it up into that swamp cooler and obviously um, you'd have that evaporative cooling effect there was a dial on the closet just as you walked into the door on the left like there's instructions how to run the whole entire thing from that <laughs> non-functioning now of course um, that's a really cool idea but the only thing with swamp coolers is they're most effective in arid climates and if it's humid they're not super effective right right you need to have um, a very dry heat in order to have um, the most um, cooling effect essentially right so you live in the camper with your partner, Aaron, mm -hmm. and how has that been? Like, have you guys enjoyed living together in such a small space? Is that something that is a struggle? Do you have any advice there? Um, to be honest, I, I wouldn't say that it's been difficult at all. I mean, I mean, it, it's definitely different getting used to having less available. I think that's probably how the do you biggest mean? thing. I mean, you don't realize the degree of consumption and, and how, I don't know, you, you just kind of use whatever is available. And so, you know, as you start removing yourself from those resources, you just kind of change how you, you utilize them, I guess. I mean, like, you know, our, our fishing trip, like you didn't have an endless quantity of food, so you didn't maybe eat like right, you would have been right. if, you, if you had it. Like, I was scavenging for <laughs> ants and pieces of mint. Yeah, there were four <laughs> ants involved for sure. Four <laughs> ants lost their life on that fishing trip, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so 
what what resources from like normal life like living in an apartment or whatever what were the things that were the most visceral or the most like hard to adapt or the hardest to adapt to um i think cooking has definitely been a lot different um cooking where you have like an endless supply of water is definitely something that you take more advantage of than you realize um even for just cleaning and stuff. Yeah, you use so much water, and it, it's really hard to gauge how much you use. I mean, we've gotten it down to using seven gallons of water a week. Um, that's not including showers. We actually um, have, like, a membership, a gym membership that will go shower. Um, but we only shower a couple times a week. I mean, beyond that, I think it's kind of excessive. I mean, nobody really complains that we're... <laughs> at least not to my face I don't know <laughs> so I, I think that um, water was definitely a difficult thing to get used to and, and more than anything I think like like with respect to the dishes like it's really difficult to like cook meals mm-hmm. that you're not going to be like cleaning up the dishes for an extended period of time that's part of the beauty of having a dog <laughs> you know <laughs> most things we can't we can clean it up most of the way and then yeah. he'll polish them off yeah you know? the mice help a little bit with that <laughs> oh, but, dude, but not to the degree that you think <laughs> that's horrible um <laughs> So, so running water is an issue and you guys like us cook outside a hundred percent of the time or. Yeah. To this point we have, um, I think that we'll probably be cooking inside a little bit more as soon as we get our vent fan put in. Uh, We kind of skipped over that. So I, I believe that's where the swamp cooler originally was on the trailer. It had been replaced with the AC unit. Um, and so we took that AC unit down because we're not going to have access to that type of electricity when we're in the middle of nowhere. And so we're kind of shifting into more DC-powered and very efficient um, electronics. Um, but um, by getting that out and putting a vent fan in, we'll be able to utilize that vent fan to exhaust a lot of the vapor that'll be produced with cooking. Um, and that... Um, in addition to the windows, um, especially as it starts getting colder in Montana, I think is going to be probably the the new norm, yeah. which is kind of, we, we don't really know exactly how that's going to go. Um, and you'll probably have to adapt your diet to that type of cooking too. Yeah. Like you won't have, you won't be able to cook like um, exquisite curries all the time just because they'll stink up all of your things. Right. I mean, I, I think Unless that, that's just not something you care about. Yeah, I don't really care too much. <laughs> Um, one of the things though, is that like getting, we're going to look at, we're getting a refrigerator. They're back ordered now, which is kind of unfortunate, but. And go into that quickly, if you don't mind, um, like the brand that you were looking at, you were saying ARBs are made by Dometic and Dometic has, there was some issue there or. Yeah. Essentially the quality control seems to be kind of a problem from a lot of the reviews that I was able to find. I've had good luck with angle coolers. Um, and the angle, yeah, and the, and the angle refrigerators, um, have quite a following and they seem to be very durable. Um, they all have a pretty good warranty, so we'll see what goes, what what comes with that, but, um, and it's a, is it open from the top? Yeah, it opens from the top and it opens like lengthwise. So you would just, we actually have it set up now where underneath the, um, the kitchen portion, we have a box that's going to fit that refrigerator perfectly, and we have uh, like drawer slides that'll actually slide out. They've got like a hundred pound capacity drawer slide, 
And so essentially we can just slide our refrigerator out, open it up, you know, take whatever we need, close it and slide it back. And we'll have a locking mechanism on it as well so we don't, you know, send it through the other side of the camper <laughs> when we're driving some gravel road in the middle of nowhere. Um, and and I, I think that that will probably really change how we end up eating in the wintertime in that before what we would do is, you know, every weekend we just cook a bunch of like beans or lentils or rice and then we just kind of dip into that bulk food that was already cooked for our okay. meals. And I, I think really that's probably the most genius way to really cook because, you know, you're you're eating good food and you're kind of supplementing onto that. Yeah. Um, it's really eating good food is a very difficult thing to really do and I think it becomes extremely difficult when you don't have the modern luxuries of a kitchen. Totally. And and refrigeration. Right. And, and how we do it is we're going to town like a couple times a week or whatever it is right. and getting fresh food and then we just keep it in the cooler and cool it with swamp cooling technology <laughs> just a towel and a little which USB interestingly pan. enough has been lost before yeah we, we lost it we we forgot evaporative cooling in africa and we just it was just retaught back to the people like relatively recently huh i didn't know that so what was the technology like years eons ago or whatever it was so ceramics i mean ceramics is a huge invention i mean um every culture really utilized them um at least to my knowledge um, and so what they would do is they'd take like an inner pot that had an enamel, so like a glaze on the outside of it, and then they'd take a, a, an even bigger pot from that, and they'd set the smaller one inside and fill in between those two pots with sand. And then they'd pour water in that sand and cover it up. And so that evaporative cooling would keep all the water out of the inner pot so you weren't introducing water into your food, but it was cooling it. So the inner pot holds your food then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And so there was a guy that actually taught that back to the people and made it an affordable technology so that, you know, instead of, you know, going to a market where nobody has refrigeration for their vegetables to sell, now you've got people who have access to ceramics and the technology. I mean, it's always the, the intricacy being you know how to use things. And um, he's taught that back to them so they can refrigerate freely and it's such a good environment for evaporative cooling that given it's uh, right arid nature yeah wow that's <laughs> wild so yeah we're using an ancient evaporative technology that well i to mean keep our stuff cold it's really quite interesting looking at most of the things that we have i mean most of the solutions to the most complex problems that we have are very old technologies that are extremely simple I think we just think that they're too simple to be the answer to the problems we have. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's brilliant. And that's been, that's kind of a, like a virtue that I try to live yeah. by, you know, like try to find this. If you have a complex problem or any kind of problem, try to find the simplest solution. It's probably your head that made it more complex. Right. Really. <laughs> right. And then it, we tend to like hide in the complexity of the problem. So rather than getting at a simple solution, we tack on all the reasons as to why we can't do it or why it is too complex to solve rather than just like getting at yeah. the very fundamentals of it and solving it at a... Yeah. Or who's responsible for the problem. Yeah. That's a big one. That's too deep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's zoom back out. We'll, we'll get metaphysical here in a minute. Um so we're talking about the the cooler and the so I guess the types of foods that you guys eat. So currently in your in your current setup, you have a piece of land just outside of town mm -hmm. that you've been staying on, 
And you're just using a cooler right now, right? Oh yeah, we've got it dialed. So there's a refrigerator with a freezer at work. And so what we'll do is every day we go to work, we'll just bring a couple bottles of water, throw them in the freezer. And when we're done with work, we take our bottles that are frozen at that point, take them back to our cooler, and then we'll just recycle that. And so, you know, I think we have four bottles total, or we did. <laughs> That's another story. Um, so we'll just take those two bottles and just cycle them. And so we haven't had really any problems with our food spoiling or anything like that. Because the buying ice is, honestly, it gets expensive, one. And then you just have all this plastic mm -hmm. and you're dealing with uh, the melting ice. So if you have the water bottles, yeah, then you don't deal with any of that. And so that's actually another ancient technology that we discovered last summer. <laughs> so like with our fishing, so we, we haven't, this is obviously a new venture for us. Last summer though, we did a lot of fishing out of the back of the truck. And so like half of the summer we spent... Not actually fishing out of the back of the trunk, but truck, but you're it, camping it in the truck. It depended upon the hole that we were actually <laughs> fishing out of, but yes, what Baron said. Um, but we, we spent half the summer living in the back of the truck. And so that really taught us a lot of the skills and probably like, like you talk a lot about like your mental capacity to deal with things, like mm -hmm. being okay with having less luxury yeah. is probably the biggest step. And I think a lot of people are really afraid to address that because they just don't know any different. Right. And they think that they'll be, what is it? Uh, Yvonne Chouinard has a beautiful quote on that. Like an impoverished life. What is it? What was it going? It's not coming to me. I know where you're going, but it's not coming to me. Yeah. But essentially, like, you know, like, you don't have to live, like, an impoverished life with less. You know, you can have less, and you can live to a greater scale than most people could even imagine living at. Because when you, when you give up those sort of opulent luxuries, then you unlock different uh, pathways that are really more luxurious than those luxuries were. Totally. So like we gave up running water, but in trade we travel as much as we want all the time, you know? So like those types of things, like it sucks to, yeah, like digging a hole and pooping in it is a thing, you know? <laughs> but to be able to um, be in the mountains all the time or travel around or all these different, all these different like adjacent possibles that are unlocked by those sacrifices are often overlooked. And then looking at it from another perspective, I mean, we look at it um, as far as like, you know, something you have to give up, but I think it's also a really good learning opportunity. I mean, realizing where your running water comes from, learning where your refrigeration comes from, like wh where does your electricity come from? Like so many people don't even think about those types of questions and in reality, um, in large part, that's why we're suffering the consequences that we are with that. Right. Cause everything's abstracted away. Yeah. I mean like our, our food system, like where is this food coming from? Who's producing it? Who's in charge? Who's, who's the seed companies? Who's the chemical companies? Um, and you really start to kind of, um, discover things that maybe you wish that you'd never even known. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I think something that was made visceral too is, um, dealing with waste and trash yeah. and um, recycling and compost and all these different things. Like we started composting stuff or like burying uh, compostable things oh. uh, just to like limit our waste production. 
And then recycling becomes a definite habit because you can only deal with so much trash at like a grocery store trash can or, you know, like a gas station trash can is receptacle is only so big, you know, so then you're recycling a lot more. So then we try to buy things that don't produce as much waste so that we don't have to deal with that waste. And in doing so, it's like we see all of the waste that we produ were producing in the past and it's, uh, it's alarming, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really crazy. Like, we don't produce that much waste, but, like, every time we have to go throw trash away, like, we're so disappointed in ourselves. Right. Like, we actually utilize that many, like, single-use plastics just to eat. Right. And, and we're, and, yeah, I think you and Aaron and Elsa and I are both doing our best to not be, like, wasteful. But yeah. in our culture, it's really, it's honestly difficult, and I hate to use that excuse, but um, it's hard, like, now in Montana, I've noticed that there are a lot more bulk food stores, and that's been a really cool thing. Yeah. The other thing that we just saw today is, like, the local recycling place, they don't even accept cardboard anymore. Really? They, I know they don't accept glass out here. Yeah, we, do, we don't have glass, boxing. we don't have plastic, the only thing we have is paper, cardboard, aluminum cans and other essentially um mixed metals maybe there's an opportunity there but just recently like we just dropped stuff off and they said that they're going to have to start charging to take cardboard interesting and and so you kind of start reaching a point where um maybe this is a more um sound solution to the waste that we're producing and that you have to be more conscious of it but fundamentally, that problem, I think, almost lies more at the hands of um, the stream that the consumers are actually, like, feeding out of. Totally. And, and so... Well, that's a... It's kind of a, like, an excuse that I don't want to use, but we're at the end of that sort of tributary. Right. You know? So it's, it's like a... But we can also choose and, like, influence the patterns with our buying habits more right. so than we realize, you know? And so that's kind of what has started us um, on another avenue, being that we've been working on a piece of property that we have access to for um, essentially um, growing food and selecting food that has is very tolerant to cold temperatures, a short growing season, something that you could plant in another, another location um, at a lower elevation, and it would do extremely well, and it would deal with you know, early frosts, it would deal with um, huge fluctuations in temperature. Um, and, and our intentions with that is eventually kind of go the direction of like Rob Greenfield. I think he's a he's a pretty cool guy. I mean, I definitely recommend that you go watch some of his videos. Um, is he the one that does the terrace farming? No, that's Sepp Holzer. Okay. Yeah, he's in northern Austria. Northern Austria is where he's at. Okay, so tell us a little bit about Rob Greenfield. Oh, geez, I don't know. <laughs> he, he could tell you about himself better than I could, <laughs> I think. But um, he's doing, um, his most recent project is he's been living off of food, only food that he forages or grows for the last, um, like, 200 and some days. He's going to do it for a year. Hmm. And so he has multiple different gardens where he's at in Florida where he'll actually go and harvest his food and he's kind of got like um work shares if you will like yeah. he'll 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 ask him if he can like you know turn their front yard into a garden in exchange for him building a shed on their property and living on it and so um by doing that type of a model 
he's producing his own food, he's not over-consuming with respect to the amenities that he demands in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's really, it's a very provocative um, example of how you can live. Yeah. I mean, it really forces you to kind of, I don't know, re-examine how you're living and like if this guy can just like move around from town to town and do this and be totally okay. Like, I think he said that he, he doesn't want to make more than like $5,000 a year. Interesting. I think there's so much virtue in that. Like that's been sort of, cause I, for a long time chased, uh, making more and more money, uh, to solve my problems, but it's, it's a fool's game. It seems, you know, like there, there are ways to win that game. Like, honestly, there are plenty of ways to win that game. But at the same time, I think it's uh, it's a lot less input to figure out how to be more frugal and how to be more effective with your spending and how to like buy things with the highest value than it is to find ways to make more and more and more money. Because I think inevitably you keep keep spending out of control. Yeah. You know? So I'm with Rob on this one. It, it makes you really question yourself more. I think it kind of puts it back on yourself as opposed to letting like a, extraneous, um, extraneous goods define you more than how you actually present yourself and how you go about your life. Totally. So I think it's a, a very interesting yet very difficult thing to go about doing. Yeah. Especially societally because there's a lot of judgment because our sort of scorekeeping mechanism culturally is your yearly income (laughs) so like i got a high score this year you know but i'm trying to get a low score and figure out how to work with a low score as best as possible i like fishing more yeah yeah i like fishing days on the water (laughs) yeah yeah that's a that's a good measure of success days on the water Okay, so you have your farm. You're growing as oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> so you're you're trying to target species of plants that are um, that grow really well at relatively high altitude, cold temperatures, mm-hmm. which is where like what is the altitude up here where the farm is? I think it's like only like forty five hundred. Okay, so but it not... gets cold. Yeah, it, like we got our first freeze. Um, what would have been uh, July nineteenth. Are you serious? Yeah, so a lot of our crops already died. But that's okay, that's okay. Because so that's like a forced selecting right. function, right? Yeah, so essentially, probably we'd be considered to be very, very bad gardeners and farmers. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. So the way I'm looking at it is that if we take a crop that doesn't do very well here, um, you're going to have multiple different genetics within that crop that have the capacity to deal with it. It's almost just like chance mm-hmm. you're, you're just pulling it out seeing you know um who has the capacity to do well under this certain scenario or just survive right um or it, who who produces um flowers first so for example one of the crops we've been playing with um is fava beans fava beans do very well in a lot of places but here i mean we just started getting our fava beans to flower couple of weeks ago and so what we're doing is we're kind of it's currently it just turned august it's the first of august yeah so i think so a couple of weeks ago mid-july yeah yeah that's about right um and so what we've been doing is kind of keeping track on what fava bean um, plants flowered first and we'll save um seed from those plants and propagate it first and so essentially we're just trying to take the best genetics the the most 
efficacy that we can out of whatever plant is willing to display it and propagate it. And that in conjunction with the epigenetics of the plant actually looking at um, what plants really learned how to survive and understood that they needed to change, you know, turned off or turned on certain genes in order for them to be more effective in this climate. And so another one that we tried, which I'm not entirely sure what is going to happen this year, but that's, that's totally okay. I love experimenting with this. Um, we tried three different varieties of rice. We did two from northern Japan and one from Ukraine. Um, and so we planted those early on and um, a few of them died, but one of them persisted even though the rest of them died. Hmm. And so I was super stoked about that. Aaron's like, oh, our rice crop failed. But you're <laughs> like, we got a strong one. <laughs> right. I'm so excited that some of them survived. And I don't know if they'll end up producing or not, but um, we still have all of August and they're still alive. And so we'll see. So why rice? I think rice is an extremely interesting crop. I think the stats I looked at it, they were like, um, they produced a staple crop for like a third of the world's population. Um, and furthermore, a lot of these mountainous areas, we have problems with flooding in the spring. Why not take advantage of a characteristic in rice in that it enjoys being in water and it actually acts as a weed pressure against other plants in addition to the fact that water also has a very high specific heat. So as soon as it is warmed, you can deal with very cold nights in the spring and get a crop earlier than you might have been able to do in another scenario, given the fact that the soil would have been too cold. And so I think it's a really, it could be a really easy crop to grow, given the proper genetic work on the, the crop. Um, it's just kind of a guessing game. I mean, you don't really know what will do well and what won't, but I think that's why I enjoy it so much. You don't really know what you're going to find. So what plants have worked well, or what, yeah, what different crops have worked well for you thus far? Uh, the fava beans have done extremely well. Um, the kale was doing well when we went up there. Yeah, that, that should be fine. I wasn't really too concerned about that. It was delicious, though. Yeah. I about cleaned you guys out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was hungry. We didn't have any ants at that time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, what else? I think we'll probably start shifting more and more into um, some grain crops as well. I've been really inspired looking at the Land, the Land Institute in Kansas. They are developing... Um, perennial crops, which I think is absolutely the answer to a lot of the problems we're experiencing. I mean, we, we you look at the diesel um, expenditure, how much we're actually using in diesel in order to just prepare a field. Um, and then with a perennial crop like Kernza, you go through and you harvest it once a year, or you co-plant it with another crop that you can harvest and is also a nitrogen-fixing crop. Um, you're you're kind of doing two things at once, which is a skill, at least in this lifestyle, that you kind of learn to really lean into. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's pretty important to do, and especially with, like, a limiting resource, like, you know, fossil fuels. I mean, if, if we have the capacity to do the amount, you know, have the amount of energy that we, we can have with these fossil fuels, we really need to um, improve the the yield from each gallon spent, if you will. Right. We need to make it mean more. So the idea with perennial crops is you plant them once. Yeah. And then you don't have to deal with planting them and preparing the soil again and mm -hmm. cutting or, and removing the dead plants and all these different things. Right, totally. 
So you plant them, they establish themselves, and year after year they even get stronger. And interestingly enough, they're also what they would define as like a regenerative um, agricultural technique in that every time you cut it back, you have a bunch of root die-off. And that root die-off is carbon that's being sequestered within the soil. And so every time you're able to do that, you're taking carbon that would be atmospheric and turning it into a carbon-rich soil, which is something that we need to do in order to actually turn around um, this consumption habit that we have. We consume everything out of soil and think that we can just like throw in, you know, our, our basic fertilizers and it will solve the problem. Um, but you look at how much a little bit of carbon um, will do in the hydration of the soil, like the overall um, ability of that water to be absorbed by the soil. We, you, you look at different techniques, like um, one of them is a Ruth Stout um, mm. method of um, like farming or gardening. Um, she lays um, hay over top of her garden, and so that acts as a, a, a mulch, a barrier that also absorbs water. And so as you start looking at mimicking the mechanisms that nature utilizes in order to sustain its um, persistent nature, um, you learn that really, once again, all of the solutions that we really need are already being displayed by us. It's just that we're too busy, you know, looking around for ants as opposed to realizing <laughs> that we just figured out how to not irrigate our crops as much, how to build more um, carbon within our soil and essentially do more things that we want to do and less things that demand this, you know, high attention, this high input that we have become so addicted to doing with pretty much everything. So with Kernza specifically, that's a perennial crop that mm -hmm. they're working on in Kansas, which, yeah. yay, Kansas. <laughs> it's not often that we get to cheer for our state. Um, but so Patagonia is using Kernza in their beer, right? Right. So Patagonia, so Patagonia started making both food and the company that makes clothes started making food and now beer. Patagonia, Patagonia Provisions is yeah. that branch. And they, they've pivoted to make their, um, their mission statement to save the world right. effectively, right? Yeah, and, and so if you look at it, you know, if you buy, like, how long does a jacket last you? You know, you might get 10 years out of it, whatever, five years, and then you got to buy a new one. And I guess Patagonia's perspective and Yvonne Chouinard's perspective is that if you're having to consume at that rate there's got to be a better way to address a lot of the problems that we're having. And, and he thought that food, I mean, like you eat all the time. And so why not revolutionize how we're actually doing that or really go back to how we were doing it and make it something that's more sustainable so that we didn't have as much of an impact or a maladaptive impact. Because I think there's a really important point here, and that is, is that people get so caught up in thinking that by being present, they're having a maladaptive impact. But in reality, we can improve things at a much greater rate than we even understand. Like our ability to agitate um, systems into becoming more productive um, is something that we, I don't think, have really tapped into. More productive in a regenerative way, too. All right, so like permaculture, that's one of the things that I think is absolutely fascinating. And I, I, I think that permaculture really addresses most of the problems that we have 
extremely well. So zoom out a little bit and define permaculture as best as you can. Okay. Um, <laughs> so permaculture um, was originally coined by Bill Mollison. Um, if you have a free moment, I would absolutely recommend that you go watch some of his videos. The dude's oh, Give me some of the best ones and I'll put them in the show notes. Okay, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but essentially he... I think he was just really frustrated with how things were going um, in his research or something academically speaking. And so he kind of, he kind of went the other direction. Um, and so he defined something that was very um, cyclical, if you will. So in, in nature, you can follow the course of, you know, you can scale as far in or out as you please, but you can follow everything as it cycles around. I mean, the petroleum fuels that we're utilizing now are ancient deposits, you know, hydrocarbons that have been there for an extremely long time that were once carbon dioxide, right? I mean, that carbon dioxide would have been turned into a sugar by a plant and then ingested by an animal that would have been decayed down um, into a very complex hydrocarbon that we now use to power our automobiles. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, looking at a plant, you take a plant, um, it degrades, it, it captures so much carbon dioxide every year in the summer, and as it degrades, it also releases that carbon dioxide and methane. And so being able to um, track those elements, not just in the plant itself, but also in the practices utilized in order to actually cultivate food. And so the idea of like permaculture is that it's like a permanent culture. And so as opposed to looking at a plant that's like an annual, which is actually really rare, most plants are very perennial by nature, and the annual um, crops are actually, or plants are ones that are actually almost rejuvenating the soil. Right, because it's almost wasteful from a biological perspective oh, yeah. to regenerate your roots and grow from a seed every yeah, year. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And so by looking at it from a different perspective and looking at more perennial crops for um, food production, um, and ones that you don't have to put as much input into, that's essentially permaculture. But permaculture expands out even further and also looks at like how, how like people interact. And so it becomes this really like deep um, interaction um, that I am not even capable of really <laughs> touching on. There's much better people than I in order to actually explain that, but um, it, it really... So how will you leverage these ideas in the context of your cabin or your your land or how do you hope to um that's a really difficult question honestly i mean like i i think that i almost definitely use it to produce a lot of my own food um to develop plants that are um more independent and are more hardy so that i don't need to um take care of them tend them as much um Eventually, though, I think that I think it's something that needs to be shared so that people can understand that there are different ways of going about being a human and that you can actually like do good by being alive and doing what you do. Um, it's so far removed in that if you really start thinking about all the different maladaptive things that you do and just to subsist here, we're pretty parasitic. It's, it's horrible. And so... I think it's really important to give people a little bit of hope in that, you know, you can really improve things. Yeah. And I think that really that idea, as soon as you realize that you can improve things, you can take it wherever you want. And and furthermore, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, well, I guess you're talking about like the regenerative energy, aren't you? 
Oh, we can. Yeah, okay. let's. We can go there now. So, okay. you, do you want to? We yeah, have, totally. So you have a creek running past the farm, yeah, right? I do. So then the question becomes: How can you leverage that the potential energy in the flowing water, right? Hmm. Or I guess it would be kinetic, but it's there's still potential well, to it, leverage it, right? Yeah, you can change that potential, and if I can think correctly, let's see. You would be using. So like a hydraulic ram pump, you can actually use two one-way valves in a pressure chamber to take a high-flow, low-pressure water source and convert it into a high-pressure, low-flow. And so essentially you can take that force and pump water straight up a hill. So it's like you're, it's like a higher voltage, effectively. If you were, yeah, okay, that's that's confusing. <laughs> but if you're going to take the metaphor of energy, it would be like converting it to a higher voltage. But it's like if you have a big bucket of water that's flowing down, and then you constrict that to a straw, mm-hmm. you're going to have a lower flow, yeah. but it's going to be higher pressure, right? Right, yeah, I, I buy it. So, I'll go with that. So that's what you're trying to do, though, right? Right, well, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll pump water up using that mechanism, the voltage mechanism. And then what I'll do is I'll use the then converted potential energy by changing its relation to um, the surface I can drop it down to and run it through probably a Tesla turbine, but you could also use a Pelton wheel. I'm really interested in the Tesla turbine, mostly just because a lot of people don't really know about it, and I don't think that it's really been exploited as much as it can actually be. So what does the Tesla turbine do? Um, So Tesla turbine has two different inlets in one um, out port, essentially, so where it actually, um, the water will come through. Um, And so it takes, it uses the edge effect, so it's almost like, it's almost taking like an adhesive effect of the water. And so you have, Hmm. I I don't really know the exact number of discs, we'll say like five discs or so, and they're all like stacked on top of one another in this container, but they have a spacer in between each one of them so that they're not touching. And so when that water gets pumped through, it spins around, centrifugally speaking, and it goes into the center port, and that's the exhaust port. But as it's going around, it's taking all of that surface area and all of those um, discs and it's causing it to have that adhesive effect where it actually pulls it as it twists around. Interesting. So it begins to spin. Right. And so essentially you have a drive shaft in the same, um, in the same orientation as the exit of the water as it comes to the Tesla turbine. And so you would take that um, rotational energy in the Tesla turbine to use to use that to generate your electricity. Um, and I, I kind of played around with the idea of a TROMP, a T-R-O-M-P-E. I actually learned that technology from Bill Mollison, the founder of Permaculture. Um, and essentially it's like a an ancient technology um, that has then been revitalized in... Um, mining camps and that's how a lot of mining operations generated um, pneumatic um, power and so you drop water through a pipe and the distance that you drop it is um, correlated or is um, equivalent to the amount of pressure that you're able to produce and so you drop it through a larger pipe like a piston kind of it's a really complex it's very simple, but it's really complex to kind of wrap your head around like how it's actually doing what it's doing. 
but you just run it from a larger pipe to a smaller pipe and you have vents where you do that. And it, it plays off of the Venturi effect where you have, um, let's see if I can remember this right, you increase the velocity of um, whatever is flowing through the pipe in a smaller pipe, um, but you decrease the pressure. And so you create a vacuum by actually necking it down and it draws all that air in, which then is continually pushed down to the bottom into a pressure chamber. And that's where your compressed air comes from. But the scale is very difficult to reach. And furthermore, the amount of the compressed air that you would actually need in order to do a lot of the things is, for example, like a car or... So, so you're leveraging gravity... Right, like it's it's some some um, distance that the water has to drop to generate the pressure. Yeah, I think it's so like, you'd have to have like a cliff or something almost. Or in the case of these mining operations, you'd have the top of a mountain where you could drop it down wherever you want. And so they just had like an ideal scenario for that particular technology. Um, but I've really fixated on the idea of using um, like compressed air as a means of a battery as opposed to using like our standard um, battery mechanism. Um, and I think that I think that it would be useful in a number of ways. Um, like you could run pneumatic tools, you could have pneumatic locomotion of some sort. Yeah, and also like in the summertime, like um, one of the side effects, if you will, of um, decompress or yeah decompressing um the air or allowing it to retain to its normal pressure one atm um what you would be doing is also cooling the air um, but a really interesting thing is that by utilizing that air to do whatever you want it to do for example like what you said a pneumatic tool or to run a tesla turbine or <laughs> whatever you wanted to use it for um you aren't releasing any like products of combustion. All you're doing is you're taking an inert substance and changing the pressure, which is really quite an interesting thing to think about. Um, so you know you're you're you know building something in your cabin in your shop and you're using pneumatic tools to do so. Um, you're cooling it at the same time. Right. And so essentially you take or your, heating it if you're doing the inverse, right? Right. And so I've kind of. I don't know, I'm probably persistent enough that I'll probably try doing something with a compressed air, uh, with a tromp, in that if you drop it like 30 yards or so, you'll be getting close to like 40-ish PSI, hmm. which isn't a ton, but I think that I could drop it that distance. And really, like, compressed air is an extremely potent energy source, and so like with 40 PSI, you can do quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, you won't run a vehicle, but you could definitely use it to generate passive electricity or you could use it to oh geez i mean you, you could use it to um operate very very simple mechanisms that don't really require maybe as much torque and you could run you could run a generator off of it right like some sort of generator to generate electric energy that you could then use right you would use the, like an electromagnetic generator so like an alternator and so that's probably how you would be generating your electricity to begin with with the um uh that's how you'd be generating your electricity with a tesla turbine by dropping the water through it and then what you would do is you would take that electricity that you were producing and as opposed to running it into a battery bank you'd run it into an air compressor 
and then once again you could couple functions in that if you were doing more of your um, uh, air compression at night or you were doing more of it in the spring and the fall you would be heating and that there is going to be it's an exothermic reaction essentially and that you're going to be producing heat in the compression of the air so um, then you can take that extra heat and run it through your greenhouse or run it through your house or whatever you need. Definitely. And so you can take what other people would look at as a disadvantage and leverage it to what you need in that particular scenario and kind of do two things at once. So you're leveraging the entropy for like a further function so then it's no longer entropy really. Right. Yeah. And, and then the same thing with the decompression with actually utilizing it. I mean... If it's really hot in the cabin during the summertime, you just, um, you are able to take that compressed air and maybe you're doing editing or you're using a bunch of electricity or you're running a refrigerator or something. Um, by generating that electricity, you're just passively producing um, air conditioning. And so depending upon how you actually utilize those resources, you would be able to um, have a more comfortable existence while essentially doing the same thing that everyone else is doing but going against the grain why don't we use compressed air more as a energy source <sighs> or an energy like a potential energy storage i guess more than i guess it's both we can't yeah it's i'm not entirely sure why we don't use the compressed air um i know that we've kind of moved towards using like um like reservoirs as a potential energy source for, so, for example, like if you have like a really sunny day in the summertime, right, and you are um, taking all of that sun, or at least if you're in Montana, a really sunny day in the summertime, we don't have those in the wintertime. <laughs> um, so you take all of that um, electricity and you pump water with it. And you pump that water up into a reservoir. And then when you have like peak demand, high demand of electricity, you drop more water through your turbines in your dam and you produce the electricity you need. Hmm. But then you, you have the, if you're storing it in a reservoir, then there's the water that evaporates out, so then you're effectively wasting a good bit of that energy use, potentially, right? Yeah, definitely. But, I mean, you're also getting it there from somewhere passively. So right. I think that, fundamentally, it would be probably more intelligent to generate or produce that potential energy and utilize it only when you need it as opposed to being wasteful in how we're generally doing it and just depending upon technology that's really not as advanced as it should be in order to actually retain it. Okay. And it, it'll better let us deal with the fluctuations in the requirements of electricity. At scale, right? Right, which is not what we're really doing with ours, of course. But you can extrapolate the same principles out to scale pretty easily. Right. The only problem with compressed air, though, is that you run into problems with, like, capacity for your storage. Um, <clears throat> but I think that's where, looking at something like a more modern air compressor, um, you're less limited by your environment and your ability to use a trump, and you can compress air at a higher PSI than you otherwise would be able to. Okay. And so... You can, and that's once again a really interesting thing to look at, like compressed air. Like if you take a vessel with so much compressed air and you take some of that compressed air out, what are you effectively doing? Cool. Like you're changing the pressure within it, and you're decreasing your 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 capacity to have energy in that vessel you just took from. You're always draining it out the bottom whenever you take it out. Hmm. Right. 
But the interesting thing with the compressed air is that you also heat it, and it increases the compression. Oh, interesting. So you have that brownie motion going for you and that you just increase the the movement, the fundamental movement of that, um, the, the constituents of that compressed air to the point where you are increasing the pressure. And so you could take that compressed air container and put it in your greenhouse and use it in the heat of the sun and you are amplifying the amount of energy you're able to, you know, pull out of it passively. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. That's wild. <laughs> I, ran through a, I ran through a couple of the calculations on it, though. Um, and I think that you'd have to get it relatively hot. Well, uh, even... But it's, it is it is like a sizable difference between... Like, I, I know this from playing paintball. And if, if we were storing our tanks inside and it was, like, nice and warm and you filled your tanks inside, then you take them outside and go play in the cold weather... And you have significantly less pressure in your tank, mm -hmm. you know? So it, it's, it may not be, like, a huge difference, but it's, it's, a, it's a visceral difference, at least, you know? Yeah. It depends on how you calculate it, too. I was probably not using the correct equation. It would probably be the Van der Waal equation. <laughs> well, I wasn't using a, the, an equation at all. But <laughs> the Van der Waal equation would more accurately describe what was happening. Um, the ideal gas law is... Eh. Okay, so I think we've we've covered a good bit of um, <laughs> leveraging pneumatics for energy. Are there any other like uh, interesting things that you'd like to dive into as far as the cabin goes, or do you want to pop back to trailer mode for a minute? Trailer mode would probably be good. Okay. <laughs> are there any thus far, like in your experience in living in the camper, are there any um, clever solutions that you've leveraged or? different ideas that have kind of been aha moments or anything like that? Or has it been mostly just like paring down and dialing in what gear you have and all that kind of stuff and fixing the things that were already broken? Or... Yeah. I mean, it's been a busy summer. Like when we haven't been working on it, we've been um, working to be able to fund it. So I don't know that we've really had any like really profound realizations as to um, how we should be doing things or why. Um, but most definitely that what we're doing is the right thing to be doing. Hmm. Like, it definitely feels much better being able to be comfortable with less. And I think that, I don't know about you guys, but just being able to know that, like, you know, you hook up and you take your trailer down the road and, like, your existence is just, yeah, like, wherever you, you want to go. Everything you need. So we drove together, what, like, 60 miles outside of town? Mm -hmm. You said it was going to be, like, 25, 30, so that ended up being an interesting <laughs> thing. <laughs> but um, we were, like, 60 miles outside of town on a dirt road and um, and outside of cell service, like, a good, what, almost two hours of driving yeah. with our campers especially. And... Being able to, uh, both of us, be able to do that and drive out there um, and just have everything that we need was a pretty powerful experience. You yeah, know? definitely. I mean, it, anybody who's ever felt like they left something behind, which is pretty much everyone, <laughs> um, this is definitely a weird experience in that you're almost like reversing it and you're more concerned about what you brought along that you like shouldn't have brought along. Right. 
I mean, like, you just have everything. Like, you are not missing anything within your existence. Like, Elsa and I would always ask that when we when we first started. It's like, oh, do we have this? Yeah. You know? And it's like, oh, yeah, everything that we have is well, we in did, this camp. We, so we it's did, all good. We did forget quite a bit. Yeah, actually. we did, actually, at the cabin. <laughs> Damn it. We were going to... Um, I want to learn how to tie flies because that's something that we spent a lot of time doing is fly fishing. And I think it would be fascinating. And I think Elsa would be super good at tying flies, too. So I want to get into tying flies, but we forgot the vice. So next we'll have time. to, yeah, we'll have to next leave that time. for next time. <laughs> um, something that I have experienced in coming up to Montana and spending time like in the northern states, I've had plenty of experience. Well, not plenty, but like some experience with black bears. But this is the first time that we've been around grizzlies. So, what is that? Is that even something that you consider anymore, or is it just part of? life is it like a subconscious thing and in your interactions with grizzlies like what has that been like like if you could kind of describe because you've had several interactions with mm -hmm. grizzly bears so maybe just describe like what they're like as an animal and um what it's like to interact with them well i mean i'm definitely most of the time more concerned about meeting another person than a grizzly bear up there <laughs> um the grizzly bears, generally speaking, are pretty chill. I mean, at least in my experiences that I've had. Um, there's definitely some extraneous ones, but I think that um, a lot of those are more associated with um, either habituated bears or bears that just didn't, they were literally just scared. Habituated meaning that they've come into contact with humans and got a, some sort of reward for it. Mm -hmm. So then they pattern that behavior. Pavlov's dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, they see humans and salivate. And yeah. It's not what we want. Yeah, you don't want that at all. If you see a salivating bear, just... I don't really know what to tell you, actually. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, I've had a few experiences, you know, walking down a road with, a, you know, holding a bike... And, you know, you come around the corner and there's a grizzly bear 40 yards in front of you. And um, it was my dad and I when we saw that bear. And we, of course, just kind of kept going along, following it, keeping our distance. And we followed that bear for several minutes. I mean, uh, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, and we just kind of gave it some room. And it was a pretty cool experience. It eventually came around this bend, though, and... We kind of gave it some birth, so it didn't. We didn't get too close to it, and we came around the corner, and the bear was gone. So it was like a Bev Doolittle moment. Um, so essentially, what what I mean by that is like, you know, she did these paintings where um, there's a bear just like hidden within the picture that you don't see at first glance. And so we thought we'd come around the corner, and there was going to be a grizzly bear that's just like hiding in the bushes, just off to our right or left or somewhere, and it's just going to, you know, be salivating at that point. And once again, like, that's not going to be good for us. Um, but we kept walking a little bit further, and the bear had gone, I don't know, 15, 20 yards into this little wildflower meadow, and it was just hanging out in the meadow, just eating flowers. Um, the strange thing, though, is my dad was like, you know, this bear most definitely knew we were here, and it just didn't do anything. And so probably that's the scariest... Like it didn't even look back at you. No, right? yeah, it never looked at us, never acknowledged us. And so that's probably the weirdest thing is that um, we almost like expect some sort of like an acknowledgement, like something's happening. And we didn't get anything with that bear. But I mean, it just kind of continued on with what it was doing and 
we did as well. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, I mean... Because you think, like, I guess, like, pop culture and everything paints grizzlies as being just, like, these ferocious sort of, like, um, voracious predators that they don't even have a thought or an interaction. It's just kill, kill, kill. Right. You know? So I think it's... Uh, it gives me a little bit of, uh, like, sense of safety in knowing that it's it's another mammal, and right. it's looking to protect its own safety, and it's not going to just jack with you for fun. Right. And they generally don't want to help hunt humans because they've been selected to not. Like, the ones that do interact with humans are generally killed or moved, you know? Right. So knowing all those things makes it a little bit more comfortable out here. But it's it's still an interesting sort of it shouldn't be background a, process yeah, to keep it, running. I don't think it should be a fear. I think it's more of a responsibility in that you and your actions are going to dictate what those bears learn. And so by being a responsible human and not, you know, rewarding them and habituating a bear, you're you're really um, kind of changing the course for that bear's livelihood like what they're going to do in order to survive um but so like if we were to leave food out and a bear comes and eats the food then the bear will likely come back to that camp over and over again and once it does that somebody will likely either kill the bear or they'll have to like move it and tag it and then that creates all this complexity for the bear right so it's 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 our responsibility to not be belligerent because that could spare the bear's life even you know Right. right. Is it, that kind of what you're getting at? It's more like being afraid of the dark, really. I mean, it, it's something that you're you you don't know, you're unaware of, and so you fear it. Yeah. I mean, it's it, there definitely should be respect. Like, don't get me wrong in that you should be respecting bears um, because they have a capacity to, you know, most definitely kill you or do, you know, whatever they want to do. Um, but I, I don't really see the fear component. I think that's almost like a... I don't know, a rudimentary stage of kind of becoming comfortable just being outside, <laughs> really. I mean, like, yeah. like there, there's a lot of scary things out here if you don't know what they are. Right. I mean, you could... Like snakes, even, and you could, even plants, mushrooms, all these things could be deadly. You could be terrified of a squirrel if you didn't know it was a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> just depends. <laughs> And sometimes it is a grizzly, and you thought it was a squirrel, so who knows? <laughs> earlier today, <laughs> earlier today, we're parked on a piece of, your your dad owns this land that we're parked on. And earlier today, I wasn't here, we weren't here, but a lady came by that lives in the area and was questioning what was going on, who owns this land, all those types of things. And we're talking about, like, that in the context of, like, uh, society and how people look at uh, sort of nomadic existence. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, it, it almost, I don't know, I, I didn't really know what to say to begin with. Like, I was kind of focused on just backing the trailer. And you know these little fiberglass trailers, just they don't back <laughs> they, they don't go back they go forward <laughs> so i was backing it in and my spotters weren't spotting so i was more focused on that making sure i didn't whack a cottonwood or something and this lady pulls by and so i was trying to get out of the road so she could pull through the road and she was starting to question about 
you know, what we were doing here and um, essentially just like the validity of us existing here. And, you know, I told her that it was, it was fine. Like my dad owned the property. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. It's not like we we're just like parked on a random piece of property that somebody owned. Um, and so it just kind of diverted into a conversation where then it was, you know, well, you need to be careful with, you know, fires, you know, we, ooh, this is a high fire danger and people actually live here full time. And so like the best retort that I had was, you know, like, yeah, I live here full time too. I mean, like, this is my existence as well. Like, yeah, I don't really want to fire either. Um, but it really yeah, just... we're not even... There's no fire... Like, we're not burning any fires. All of our cooking has been done via propane. So no. it's like... It's a fear-based response. And she's trying to, like, have some sort of upper hand on you for choosing a different route. Right. Is kind of what it seems and, like. And it becomes more of a thing just, like, attacking on, like, the existence being something that's different, unusual. Um, and... I don't know, it probably gets back to this whole class thing. I mean, you know, number one, we're parked down by the river, and that doesn't have a very good thing going for it. <laughs> I think it's great, really. Erin's yeah. <laughs> a little sensitive on it. She doesn't like telling people we're parked down by the river. Um, but just just the fact that, like, we're living in a trailer, I think people automatically just kind of assume that we're just kind of low life, if you yeah, will. Yeah, yeah. Like, we just, we didn't work hard enough, and we didn't, like, make it in this, you know finance game as baron puts it you know like this this um encouragement to for more and more and more and like we just kind of dropped out of it and so yeah it was just really interesting to think about um i guess just kind of being in that position i think it was the first time that we've really been put into a position where we're kind of like belittled for our lifestyle choice and it's an interesting thing right yeah because like internally and like in our in in my experience, like speaking, like I've had that sort of interaction plenty of times, where it's it's it is a belittling sort of like, um, people just looking at us like we're lower class than them, or yeah. like well, well we actually live here, or like we pay we pay so much rent to be here, and it's like well, I don't know I don't know how I can help you with that. You know, like you could do this too, right? You know, but it's a it's an interesting thing to deal with. And then from like an internal perspective, like everything's working, like it's great. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like so no problems, no fires, even like yeah. we're good. <laughs> I think part of the issue is, from her perspective, is it's it's probably uncomfortable to see what we're doing because it feels like we're hacking the system or something too. But I, I, I experienced kind of a similar thing, like, and I really, like, that's one thing about living this lifestyle is, like, it really makes you start kind of diving into, like, depths of your mind that you normally don't because you're so easily distracted by Netflix or Instagram or texting somebody that or whatever. Like, you can find distractions that prevent you from really dwelling on things that maybe you kind of want to edge away from. You kind of, like, lean into your subconscious right. naturally. You can't not. And so one, one morning when I was walking, um, this last week, um, I, I saw a bunch of the people with like, you know, their dirt bikes and their side by sides and, 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 um, it kind of makes you kind of question why, why you have like a intolerance of them, you know, like they're, they're like doing the same thing that you're doing, but you're just like almost like too scared to really like go talk to them and ask them like what they're doing. Um, and you just kind of like harbor this perspective that isn't warranted. 
Um, and I think that's probably a very similar um, issue with um, this whole scenario in that it's a lady that's concerned about, you know, potentially it's her own um, preservation, really, whether it's financially speaking and the property value of her home or, in this case, the value of her home with respect to fire damage. Um, but she's too afraid to really address it and, like, talk to us as people, and it becomes more as objects, and, you know, you guys just need to, like, don't do anything don't, that's going to impact just me. Don't, don't do what yeah, you're just, doing. just leave. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, like, I mean, I'd love to say that I don't feel that way towards people, but, like, most definitely, like, I see people with, like, you know, dirt bikes or side-by-sides up where I'm camping and, like, don't be here. Like, you know, you're here ruining a resource and, you know, it's it noise pollution. You are, you know, wrecking havoc, you know, causing soil erosion. But it makes you kind of want to be a little bit more persistent in how you address it and maybe get to the root of what's really going on and if it's more centered in you or if it's centered in the actual activity they're doing. Mm-hmm. It really makes you kind of um, untangle that whole chaos and actually address something at a deeper level that you really don't want to do. Which is pretty uncomfortable. Right. Or it can be. It's an interesting um, situation. and it, It's fun to read into it and kind of get a feel for what's going on there. But I think some, like where I've noticed it most, and even in interactions with rangers um, in different areas, is it's the places with the highest property values that people tend to be really uh, uneasy about people camping there often, you know? So it's, it's not like the places that are um, not, not super opulent, you can normally eat, like, you could stay there forever, but it's the places where people paid a lot of money to get their house where it is that they really have an issue with people spending time there or camping there or what have you. Yeah. Which I understand, you know? But, I mean, you, like, you see that around here. I mean, the property value has increased so significantly. It's like, it's like Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Like, mm-hmm. you guys were just through there. I mean, you know, the billionaires have pushed the millionaires out, and it becomes a thing where, like... In, in my experience, those types of people just kind of aim towards, like, seclusion. Like, they just want to be by themselves. And so, really, I think it's a it's the same question, just redirected to another group of people. I mean, it, it's it's more of a fear-based thing. And what are they afraid of? And why are they... What are they running from? <laughs> right. That's what I think is interesting. <laughs> so, like, why is Jackson Hole this place for billionaires to retreat? Because it's up in the mountains, it's it's away from it all, so they can kind of like step back and um, maybe like lean into some of that introspection or escape away from the games that they're playing all the time. But I think it's interesting that you have to have a place to escape your life, you know? Right. Like why that's a maybe that needs to be addressed specifically more so than. Um, well, it's almost like a community thing in my perspective. I mean, we're so far removed from community, and, and myself included. I mean, like, we just don't really have the community that I think was around 100 years ago. I mean, you have a community in, with respect to, like, where you work, and you've got people that you spend your day with. Um, but largely, it's something that is, you know, removed when you go your separate ways. 
and I think that people really want a, a deeper connection with one another. It's just um, kind of an uncomfortable thing to do because you kind of have to open yourself up to other people. Yeah. But then, but then we have this sort of like mycelial human mycelial net that is the internet that has like a it is a community on some level, mm -hmm. but it's not visceral, you no. know. So we crave that sort of visceral community, yeah. As a species, I think, like I think it's it's human to want other people to be around, but then at the same time, we all seek solitude as well. Right, and I guess probably that kind of enlightens my perspective in that that's that's probably a large portion of why I'm interested in doing um, like the agricultural um, perspective as far as the the farm and, and introducing um, viable crops it's also that food is so closely related to uh, like this social cohesion hmm. like food just brings people together and, you know, what better way to bring people together than something that just allows them to persist? Because mm -hmm. it, it's necessary. Right. And, and so um, I think that there's multiple ways that you look at our, like, food system now. And, like, you know, you go to McDonald's and, like, you don't really have community at McDonald's, I guess. Maybe. I mean, so speaking, do you get McNuggets, too? Like, <laughs> that's I don't cool. know. <laughs> I get a number 10 as well. Excellent. Oh, man, yeah. Um but so thinking of it like culturally and from a community perspective, how have people in your life received what you're doing and have you had to have sort of a jousting conversation as far as the decisions you've made and living in a camper and choosing this lifestyle and choosing to be relatively nomadic or how have people received that? Generally speaking, I have had no problems whatsoever. Um, do you think that's partially to do with your ability to, um, <laughs> argue a point or, or do I'm, people... I am persistent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the only person I haven't really like portrayed a lot of it to is my dad, but that's, I feel like your dad would understand it the most though. Yeah, but there's dynamics that are too deep just to present a topic like that I think and it's kind of what, what do they call it like um, agree to disagree mm -hmm. I hate that saying so much all the sayings I think I hate that one the most <laughs> but that's probably the one that I just kind of flow along with with him just like it's not worth the battle to introduce that so what does he not vibe with in it or what's his or is it not that? Or I won't have the monopoly money in the end. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it's totally just like a cultural thing. With respect to people, um, like questioning what I'm doing, I would say that most people have actually been extremely interested. And, and for what I do, like most of the patients that we end up having are older patients. And we hear it all the time that, you know, they wish that they would have spent their lives doing something like more profound and so to me like anybody that says anything different I mean it's it's not equivalent in the value or the potency of somebody you know an, an elderly person saying that they wish they would have done this mm -hmm. I mean like like Isaac and I were talking about this the other day I mean you think about how did I put this with him 
like you think about like being older and wishing that you would have done something different. Like mm-hmm. the value of saying something like that just becomes so much greater. There's so much more involved. Like your very existence is like everybody's daily existence. Their, their existence is constantly just decreasing. And you've got somebody that's like so close to the end of like their, you know, this mortality is actually, you know, is going to take them and they're having regrets in how they lived. Like that, that's just a, such a profound, I, I can't even imagine what that would feel like to mm-hmm. actually say that. And like to understand that like the choices that you've made your whole entire life are ones that you wish that you hadn't have made. So you think in doing this, then you can live through or to what you would retrospectively wish to have done. Absolutely. On average, I would say that's exactly what's happening. Because yeah. this allows you to spend more time in the wilderness, spend more time or less time having to work to pay for just persisting. I'm less of a tool utilized by a corporation or a business, and I'm more of an individual that's beginning to understand the repercussions of my existence. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a realization that I think everybody should have. Yeah. Like, you're not a tool, man. Like, <laughs> you're a person too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you may be, but you don't have to be. It's not your purpose to be a tool. Yeah, you can find better things to do than that. <laughs> That's excellent. Use a tool, don't be a tool. Yeah. <laughs> well, should we end it on that for now? Sounds good. And come back, come back to the conversation at uh, hopefully not too far into the future date. Are you and Aaron, like, um, will you be traveling soon? Or are you going to stick it out in Montana for a while? Or what's the plan there? No idea. No idea. <laughs> well, Erin called today. Um, she still hasn't been, like, accepted as a resident for MSU. Hmm. And so with that, I mean, we could, um, we'll probably, like, kind of persist in Montana mostly just because she has to be in order to get, like, that residency because she's going to have to uh, petition again. Okay. Um, and so they're very, like, rigorous as far as, like, how many days you've spent out of Montana. So, like, you can't be, like, a non-resident, like, trying to be a resident. So they have, like, you know, quotas, right? You have to be here for so many days. But um, we'll probably try to go down to, like, the desert somewhere okay. in the wintertime for uh, as long as we can. Cool. I got plenty of spots for you. Yeah. I'm exa- I'm really excited to, like, learn, you know, the, the nuances of a yeah. different area. Yeah. And because you have Montana dialed in. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's been fun, man. Like, I've learned more being around you and adventuring in the wilderness of Montana than I could have ever wished to, yeah. you know? It's been I mean, a blast. it's kind of a hard thing in that, like, we're so, like, focused on, like, one thing. Like, we've talked about, like, fly fishing so much that I yeah. kind of, like, kind of keyed in on that. But, like, in reality, I mean, like, there's so many places that I know, like, even in, like, the hot springs. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's super cool. Um, and I think that also... Like, fly fishing is cool, but I still go back to that Thoreau quote. I mean, I like fishing, but I just like fishing because it gives me something to do when I decide that I want to have a fly rod in my hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when I don't, then I'd rather, you know, like, I can find something else to do. Um, it, it just kind of lends itself to um, almost, like, introspective yeah. thoughts or, like, just deep thinking. Right, because you're, like, kinetically 
or um, like you're physically occupied yeah in doing something and you have something to think about but it allows time for your subconscious to sort of chew on deeper problems yeah oh yeah yeah it's strange yeah it's it's fascinating i've i have fishing has been something that i really enjoyed earlier in life mm -hmm. um and it's wild too that we both spent a lot of time on the lake of those yeah that is really weird it's possible that we almost bumped john boats at some point <laughs> i didn't bump john boat what are you talking about <laughs> uh, but the it's so fishing for like uh largemouth bass primarily then mm -hmm. and there and um targeting that species versus learning and with like spin casting and bait casting rods and all the equipment to go with it and then learning like tinkara which is almost the exact opposite of like bass fishing yeah you know it's it was it's been a really interesting like paradigm to wrap my head around yeah it's super interesting looking at it, it it's hard not to sound like elitist when you're talking about it with that respect but yeah. you just kind of it, it shows more vividly the progression of mindsets in mm -hmm. like a human and like how choices early on become um more cognitively based and are formed and molded into something that is more representative of the human that's making those choices and so I think that, like, with fishing, like, you kind of get to a point where you're more, um, you're more keyed in on, like, maybe not really catching all the fish, but just kind of, like, getting in. Understanding just, yeah, it's like, them. what's, what's and going kind of, on. And, like, finding your place in the, in the wilderness and, and figuring out, like, how different things are working. Like, what, what, uh, pattern of its life is the different fly in or the bug in that's hatching right. and like how does that influence how the fish is interacting and given like what point in the spawning pattern the fish is in what part of the water are they holding in mm -hmm. and then if if there's like different structure around then where is the fish in relation to that structure it's it's almost just like practice in solving a complex problem <laughs> like yeah. really like yeah and it's super iterative too and it's like immediate feedback you know like you tie on a different fly try like you have a test for yeah. your experiment it's like okay here's this throw it in nope experiment failed okay what does that tell us given the data that we had before yeah and it's also really interesting looking at it with respect to like a, a foraging mentality like yeah like the fact that we actually like kept some of the fish this trip which is something that neither of us often that's like do. super novel for me yeah yeah and, and like I don't know, it, it's, I mean, you, you saw me go all schmeagle and right. like, I'm yeah. sure somebody's going to see that. Everybody, yeah. everybody in the, in the um, video, <laughs> that's, that's part of it. Andrew having to go full golem on a fish that almost slipped out of his hands. Yeah, you just kind of get rather primitive pretty quickly, huh? But I think that's an interesting uh, mechanism to like wake in our consciousness, you know? Yeah, I mean. And, and the fact that, like, you know, it's so easy. Aaron and I, we've been kind of talking about, like, doing something more with, like, like foraging. Like, yeah, I think living nomadically, it's the way. Right. Well, it, like, like, foraging is something that, like, obviously is, like, an intelligent thing to do. But then, like, 
being able to actually like present that and like show people like how easy it is to go collect your own food. Dude, I learned so much being around you guys and Aaron, especially with all the different plant identification and oh, everything. Yeah. Like when we, <laughs> the last day that we were fishing, um, I, I, I brought a cigar to, um, <laughs> to, uh, pass my appetite off, but, um, I didn't bring any food. I just brought water. So I got kind of hungry and, um, I, I, I had been nibbling on chives, like wild chives, the, the days prior. But on in this particular stretch of water, I couldn't find any wild chives. So I tried, I found some mint, um, some fireweed, which was interesting. Like the, the flowers weren't super, like they didn't have a ton of flavor, but the leaves kind of tasted like arugula kind almost. Kind spicy, yeah. Yeah. And, um... The mint really curbed my appetite, and we both ate a couple ants just to try it, because yeah. I can't say that I've ever done that. They were mostly just crunchy, but yeah, you got a... Yeah, I got a sour one. I got yeah. one sour one. That was a little wild. Caught him on a bad day. I yeah, <laughs> no ramifications <laughs> thus far. But then um, at the at camp, finding uh, the huckleberry field, uh-huh. and we picked like loads of huckleberries, and you guys even canned some while we were out there, which yeah. was pretty rad. Yeah, once again, it's kind of one of those things we were talking about before where, like, like I, I know how to can food. Like, we've done, like, lacto-fermentation. We've done other types of canning. I mean, you cook beans and throw them in a mason jar, and you're essentially canning it, right? And so, yeah, just try something new. We've never done it before. We need huckleberries for, you know, a cold January day where we need some, you know, pancakes with some fresh huckleberries on it. And, uh, I don't know, it just kind of gives you gives you more respect i think more than anything for like the native peoples well and it, and uh, respect for like how much um like caloric intake we require yeah you know yeah. as modern humans yeah. if you're going to persist on huckleberries you'd be picking huckleberries for a good chunk of your day yeah. you know and then like um fishing and catching a trout and the interesting thing too is we couldn't legally and i think just uh whether we could or not um like just understanding how their breeding patterns and everything work i don't think that we would ever take a big fish you know given that they can procreate and the little ones are sort of um they're not able to procreate yet but by law you had to you could only keep fish that were less than 12 inches so we had to keep like a relatively small fish and we only, we harvested like what, six fish over the course of the, yeah we caught plenty more than six, but well, we, we use a strong <laughs> word here. I wasn't catching a ton of fish. Mine broke the, I have a lot to learn. Yeah. <laughs> You're but, on your way. But there were, um, in, in harvesting the, uh, raspberries even, and all these different things, I, I don't know. I can't really articulate what it is that feels so good about it. Like when we were um, harvesting mushrooms last year and uh, uh, even like wild like dandelion, you know, to put in salads and all these things. It, I, what is it that feels so good about it or feels so cool? I don't know. It's very, very deep, I think, in almost the human... Like, just, just how your brain operates and, like, data and information that's just stored from, you know, so long of, like, people actually, like, 
persisting that way it just like almost awakens an area of your brain that you just don't really I won't I won't say like really use but pathways are like memories that you're able to kind of recover yeah. it's it's really quite strange yeah it's really satisfying I think foraging I think growing your own food is really satisfying but I think that like foraging is more like immediate you know, like you don't have to, you put in the work in looking for it. And then when you find it, it's like, <gasps> you know, it just, I don't know. It like makes the monkey mind feel really good. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's definitely something that I think more people need to do. I mean, if nothing else, just to recognize how much food they actually need. Like what Baron said, I mean, like the, the, the requirements for us to actually persist and, how blatantly we overconsume without understanding where it came from. I mean, like, you know, Baron would have just snuck into the huckleberry jar that we just picked, <laughs> like, and he just, like, eats all of them. Like, that's two hours of picking huckleberries. Like, yeah. like that, that's, that's significant. That's yeah. You know, and then... Now we have tribal warfare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then now looking at it, like, how we eat food now, and it's it's not something... It's It's almost it almost gets back to like that whole like ceremonial perspective, yeah. like mm -hmm. something where it's like you understand the time that went into actually like harvesting or like picking in the case of the berries, whatever food you're eating. And so you respect it more for what that is as opposed to the quantity of it or how much you had in your mind, how much you were like wanted to eat it becomes more satisfying just because of what it is. Yeah. What's interesting too is even if you're buying your food, you're still investing some time. But that that sort of time to um receive food translation is abstracted away. So you you no longer have that like direct exchange. You know? That's what credit cards are for. <laughs> you can eat whatever you want. Right. But it's it's interesting how that um, it it doesn't feel as good. It doesn't feel as good to go buy a trout at a um, restaurant as it does to catch it on your own. Like figure that fish out, catch it, um, like kill it with kindness, you know, and <laughs> and or like at least respect the fish, and then. Um, prepare it over a fire and eat it it's like it's gratifying you know yeah definitely i mean I, I think that it's it's a good start in recognizing where our food comes from and realizing the huge gaps of understanding in our current system yeah and i think that it becomes kind of one of those like slippery slopes but in a good way in that as soon as you start to really ask a lot of these deeper questions and start to actually experience a life that's different or removed from what you were told it had to be, you know, it was just a, a game and that you needed to, like, grow up and, like, do something that, you know, was actually, like, valuable, you you really, I think you really opened up into um, what's possible and, like, the reality of things. Which is... Um can be a little bit frightening for people once you open up that can of worms yeah. but i think if you lean into it it's uh it's a beautiful thing you know
Yeah, definitely. Because we're not just here to work and die. Like, we're here to experience and like live with all this and help life continue to persist. Yeah. And we got a fair shake at doing it. We just got to try pretty hard. <laughs> Extremely hard. <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's always ants. So hopefully we will be able to get together again soon and continue this conversation because we have plenty to talk about in the realm of... Um, neuroscience and yeah whatever you guys want to talk about <laughs> all different things yeah so so we'll be back but for now let's call it and get some sleep i think we might go to glacier national park tomorrow and then go fishing afterward or something so yeah sounds good to me cool well thanks dude yeah not a problem and if people want to like reach out to you and geek out on anything just just don't or do you want to give them any information as oh yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah no absolutely include a way to get a hold of me I, I think it's absolutely fascinating to take different perspectives and um different knowledge bases and kind of combine them and and see what comes of it i, I love being able to be that um th that that force to other people and, and if i can um get yeah. that from you as well um, that, that definitely helps me. I, I love being able to see different avenues and then be able to uh, mutually respond with you as well. So cool. So Instagram, is that a decent way to contact you? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. What's your Instagram handle? Uh, it's just Andrew A. Crow, C-R-O-W-E. No underscores or anything? No. Okay, cool. And then do you have a website or anything? Um, yes, you have a blog. Yeah, but we I haven't even had a chance to read it yet. We're gonna let Baron. We're gonna let Baron read through that one first. I'm okay. a little bit hesitant of doing that one yet. Okay, well I'll have a link to his <laughs> blog in the show notes. It's actually on my Instagram too. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> well, until next time. Thanks, man. Yeah, not really. Appreciate right. you yeah. taking the time. It's Thank you for having great. me. Okay, have a wonderful day, y'all. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode. For more information and links to the things we talked about, check out our show notes at normal2nomad.com slash podcast. If you want to see more of what we're up to, we've documented our travels on YouTube for the past three years and are up to a quarter of a million subscribers. Check it out at youtube.com slash Please give us a five-star review if you like the show so other people can find it. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.